Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 9. We aren't doing exactly what I put in the bulletin. I had hopes of doing verses 10 through 19. It's not going to happen. We're doing verses 10 through 16. There was, there's too much, too much to say. And so we'll save verses 17, 18, and 19 for, for next week. We'll, we'll see what happens. But only verses 10 through 16. So I don't know. I, I had high hopes of... Uh, preaching this sermon, and then at the end, we end with singing Amazing Grace after we see the scales fall from Saul's eyes, and then we get to sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, when it's, it's not going to happen. So we're just, we'll get to sing uh, this hymn a week early, and uh, it's just a preview of what's coming next week. Well, I, I want to open with one of my favorite quotes uh, I heard in a church history class um, when I was in seminary. It's a quote from the Waldensian Church. Uh, how many of you have heard of the Waldensians? Uh, the Waldensians were the followers of a man named Peter Waldo. Peter, was, Peter Waldo was one of those pre-Reformation reformers. If, if you go to Germany today... Oh, don't put me on the spot. I don't, I don't know where in Germany. But in Germany somewhere, there's a statue of Martin Luther. And he is standing on the shoulders of four men. Uh, those four men would be John Hus, John Wycliffe, Savonarola, and Peter Waldo. Uh, these were faithful ministers of the gospel who labored before the Reformation and Uh, That statue of Luther on their shoulders shows you the role that they played. And uh, Peter Waldo was in northern Italy. His church was persecuted, and they were forced to flee and live in the remote valleys of the Italian Alps. Now, I I, I know the suffering and persecution they endured was, uh, was very severe, uh, but man, if you had to pick a place to hide out, um, the valleys, a remote valley in the Italian Alps, I mean, that sounds amazing. But the quote goes like this, this quote from the Waldensian church. They would say, hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers fail, God's anvil stands. There's some incredible images in that quote. There is a person Specifically, an enemy who is hostile. And this enemy has a hammer in his hand and he is beating a surface over and over and over again. And in time, his hammer splinters and breaks because the surface he is striking is an anvil. I think what do anvils normally weigh? I mean, I think they're around 400 pounds of cast or forged steel. And the lesson here is apparent. It's that the enemies of God can beat and hammer away. They can try to crush and destroy the church. They can attempt to thwart the plan of God and curb the expansion of his kingdom. But in time, they will fail because they're hitting an anvil. 
and not just any anvil. They are hitting God's anvil. And after enough blows, that hammer will fail, the handle handle will splinter, it will give way, but the anvil remains. Makes me think of the statement the Lord Jesus makes in Matthew 16, in which he says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a similar image. Christ building his church on the rock, and no one, not even the strength of hell, will defeat it. Hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers fail, God's anvil stands. Saul of Tarsus had been doing some hammering, hadn't he? He was there at the trial and execution of Stephen. He ravaged the church in Jerusalem, dragged men and women from their homes, locked them in prison, executed some. We saw last week he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, God's anvil stands. Last week we saw that this anvil does more than just stand. This anvil, the one getting hit over and over again, turns the tables on Saul. And now Saul is the one who gets smacked. I described this as the hunter becoming the hunted. That's what we saw Uh, You have a man here who is hunting down the followers of Christ. He's hunting them down in Jerusalem, and he takes the hunt north to Damascus. But the hunter becomes the hunted. The hunter falls into the hands of the one he was hunting. He unexpectedly meets the one he'd been hammering, the immovable all-powerful, eternal Son of God. He meets him on the road to Damascus, and he'll never be the same. You remember, Saul was headed to Damascus with, I guess, search and seizure, or yeah, search and seizure warrants in hand. The high priest wrote these for him. He's going to all the synagogues, and he's going to question all the rabbis in Damascus. And he's going to ask them if there are any they know of who belong to the way, any followers of the Lord Jesus. And those rabbis would have been tasked with handing over those names to Saul, and Saul would have found them, put them in chains, and hauled them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for blasphemy. But in God's providence, he never makes it. Somewhere on the outskirts of town, he is surrounded by a light that comes out of nowhere. A light so bright it eclipses the noonday sun. And Saul falls to the ground and he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, what would we expect to happen 
Now, I can guess what Saul was expecting. You just stick to our illustrations. You have the anvil fall. You mean like, like Looney Tunes, the anvil falls and squishes Wiley e. Coyote. Well, have the anvil fall from heaven and grind this hostile hammer to powder. Or you have the true greater hunter who has captured his prey now end his life and make him a trophy on the wall. Well, funny enough, the Apostle Paul will later say, he did make me a trophy. But it wasn't out of malice or vengeance, but he does make me a trophy. He makes me a trophy of his grace. And writing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says that I, the chief of sinners, was saved so that the perfect patience of Jesus Christ would be displayed. So he will be a trophy of sorts. But what Paul was expecting, what Saul was expecting, didn't happen. You know, he has this horrifying realization that everything he'd thought about the Lord Jesus, everything was wrong. He'd, He'd gotten him wrong in every way possible. And now, what was going to happen? Some biblical judgment. Maybe he'll be turned into a pillar of salt, like Lot's wife. Or swallowed up by the earth, as were the sons of Korah. Or have fire and sulfur rain down on his head, as it rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not what happens. The Lord Jesus tells Saul to get up. And to go into town and to await instructions. And that's where we pick up this week. We see the hunter become the hunted. And now the hunter being graciously ministered to by the very person he was coming to arrest. But before we see that, let's pray and then we'll read together. Father God, we, this is such an incredible story that Luke has put before us. Father, we know that it is your word that your spirit carried along Luke as he recorded this narrative of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And Father, we ask that you would speak through your word this morning that you would use it in our hearts and our lives to train us, edify us, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard much 
I have heard much many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We have a scene shift from this action that's taking place on the Damascus Road to now another another individual that Luke introduces us to. It's this disciple there in Damascus named Ananias. He's one of the very ones that Saul was after. One of the ones Saul was looking for. And yet he is going to be used to minister to the very man who was hunting him. Now, my mind instantly goes with, well, why Ananias? Why not get Peter or James or John or, I mean, even Philip, who we've just seen. Why not get one of the bigger guns, pull them in for this haul, this conversion of the uh, Saul of Tarsus? Why would the Lord use Ananias? The simple answer is because it pleased him. But more than that, in using Ananias, we are reminded that the power of salvation lies in Jesus Christ and not in the minister himself. The strength and the power is not found in the minister, but in Christ. And I'll tell you, that is an encouraging thing uh, for me to remember especially. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Um, To my knowledge, we have no idea the name of the minister um, under whom Spurgeon was converted. Apparently, the story goes, it was a snowy Sunday morning. Spurgeon found himself worshiping at a church he'd never attended before. And he heard this unknown minister read a section from Isaiah 45. This unknown minister read... These words, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And upon hearing those words, Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to faith. And it wasn't because of the minister. It wasn't because of who he was. We don't even know his name. But we're reminded that the power is always found in the Lord. It wasn't necessary for Peter, James, John, or the other apostles to meet with Saul. Ananias was plenty capable because he had the power of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. Then there's also the fact that who is better to send to Saul of Tarsus? Who is better to send than the guy whose name literally means God is gracious? Right? That's what his name means. God is gracious. 
So Saul is blind. He's in this house praying, crying out to the Lord. And we're told he has a vision and God speaks to him and says, I'm going to send one of my servants here in Damascus. I'm going to send him to you. This is a man you would have joyfully arrested only a few hours ago, but I'm going to send him to you. And he's going to lay his hands on you and restore your sight and fill you with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, his name is God is gracious. Imagine Saul being blind in this house. Imagine if he'd gotten word from the Lord, I'm going to send you someone that says God is just. Or I'm going to send you someone that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It would have been a terrifying thing. You're stranded in a house, completely blind, helpless. But no, our God says, I'm going to send you someone whose name is God is gracious. No, that had to gladden Saul's heart to learn the name of the man that was coming to him. But While it gladdened Saul's heart, you probably couldn't say the same for Ananias. Ananias is about to get asked to do something that's really hard. This order he receives is probably the hardest thing he'd ever done. Maybe the hardest thing he would do in service to Jesus. The Lord comes to him in a vision... Ananias responds with the textbook response the Lord calls to him, and Ananias says, Here I am, Lord. It's amazing the faithfulness of this man. He, he's not scared. He's not confused. He just says, Here I am. What would you have of me? What would you have me do? And the answer is, Rise, go to the street called Straight, at the house of Judas, And look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now before we get to Ananias' response to this command, I mentioned this before. It really is amazing the precise knowledge that the Lord Jesus has of Saul's location. And we, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, but what is surprising is that the Lord of all creation, the one through whom all things were made, he, he knows these little details about his people. He knows Saul's zip code. He knows his street. He knows his street address. He knows exactly where he is. And he has that knowledge for all his people. For all his people. He knows where I'll be found this afternoon, the gray brick house on North Hills Boulevard. He knows where you live. He knows everything about you. Not only where you live, but the state of your heart, the the griefs and frustrations. He knows all of it. 
As Matthew Henry pointed out, he says that in your times of distress, you have a friend in heaven. And this friend in heaven not only knows your country of origin, he knows your state, he knows your town, he knows your street, he knows your house. And if you cry out to him, he will bring comfort and help. Well, that's the order Ananias gets, and we see his response. He relates back to the Lord Jesus some things he's heard about Saul, some of the rumors. He says, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. So he's saying, listen, I've heard, I've heard stories out of Jerusalem. I've heard horror stories of the things that he's done to my brothers and sisters there in that city. I've also heard that he's on his way here and that he came with orders from the high priest to find people like me, your servants here in Damascus, and to bring us back to Jerusalem. Ananias' Christian walk has just gotten difficult. He is being asked to do much. God comes to him and says, go to this man, this enemy who has been persecuting the church. Go to him. This would have been a very scary thing. He, he could have thought, all right, this, is, this could be the last thing I do in service to the Lord Jesus. It reminded me of a story I heard. There were two missionaries in Iran, and they were married, a man and a woman, um, and uh, they're driving through a very rural part of the country, and as is so necessary, uh, they needed to have plenty of water on them. It's one of those environments where to get stranded uh, out in the middle of nowhere without water could be, uh, could be a very serious situation. So they stop to buy water at this convenience station. And as they pull up, they notice a man who is leaning against the convenience station and he has a machine gun just strapped over his arm. And he's just leaning there, just idly uh, with the machine gun over his shoulder. And the wife turns to her husband and she says, you need to give that man a Bible. And the husband looked at the man and he looked at the gun and he said, no, I don't, I don't think it's right. And she said, no, I'm, I'm sure it's right. And she takes a Bible out of a box in the back seat and she hands it to her husband. And she says, make sure you give this to him when you go in. And so he gets out of the car, goes into the shop to buy water. The man actually follows him into the shop. They're in there together. He buys his water, carries his bags, comes back out. The man follows him back out, returns to his post, leaning against the wall. And he gets back in the car, throws the water in the back seat. And they begin to drive off. As they drove away from that building, the wife said, you didn't give him the Bible, did you? And he said, I prayed about it. It wasn't right. 
And she said, you should have. And he said, no, I shouldn't. And then this lady bowed her head and began to pray out loud. And she said, oh, Lord, on the day of judgment, may that man's blood be on my husband's head and not mine. He is the one who would not give away the Bible. At this point, the car stops. They had a lively marital discussion, and it ended with the words, If you want me to die, I will. And they turned the car around, drove back to the store. He walked right up to the man, presented him the Bible. And the man's reaction surprised him. He took the Bible kissed it on both sides. And he said, I do not live here. Three days ago, I had a dream in which I was told to wait here for someone to give me the book of life. Thank you for giving me this book. Those missionaries kept a relationship with that man and learned that five years after receiving that Bible, that same man would be martyred for his faith. Now, I know this is a PCA church and there's uh, a discussion of continuing revelation and uh, the account of dreams and God's use of dreams and conversions. But the lesson here from this story that I want you to take is that the gospel will require and demand everything from us. Everything. That man going back and walking up to this guy outside of the store with a machine gun. In that moment, he thought, this is costing me everything. It was the same with Ananias. Walking into the house of Saul of Tarsus and saying, hey, the Lord Jesus sent me to you. That's what was being demanded of Ananias is called to do something incredibly dangerous. To go to someone who had done great evil against the saints in Jerusalem. Do you notice that word saint there? This is the first time, I believe, that we see believers called saints in the New Testament. Why are they called saints? Was it because they were... Innocent angels who had never sinned? No. Is it because they'd reached perfection? No. Did they have halos floating over their heads? No. You have these believers called saints because they have been set apart by God. When the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, he calls those Christian saints in chapter 1, and then for the rest of the book, he just goes on to just scold them and fuss at them for their crummy Christian living. But he still calls them saints. Because a saint is not one who has reached perfection A saint is one who has been set apart by the Lord Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
Well, those were the ones that Saul had been persecuting. He had done great evil to them, but Ananias was to go. And the Lord Jesus tells him why in verse 15. Why go? For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. There's that word chosen. Who chose who? It's clear the Lord Jesus is the one who chooses Saul. Saul does not choose Jesus. If not for Christ's choosing, Saul would have continued his reign of terror, persecuting the church in Damascus, right? Simple. If not for Christ's choosing, Saul would have remained spiritually blind when it came to the true identity of Jesus and the truths of the gospel. See, enemies of God don't just wake up one day on their own and choose to bend the knee and follow Christ. It's the opposite. The hound of heaven tracks them down, opens their eyes, gives to them faith and repentance, and he is the one who gets all the credit. I think this is why our human nature doesn't like this idea. Because we don't want to share the glory and the credit. You think back to John 11 and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. What did Lazarus do to come back to life? Lazarus is in the tomb. He was dead. King James says that he stinketh. And Christ brought him back to life. A dead man got up and walked out. It was the work of Jesus, not the work of Lazarus. And that is a picture, spiritually speaking, of Saul of Tarsus. Here is a man who is spiritually dead coming to life. If you remove the choosing of Jesus, how in the world do you explain this killer, this man who is breathing threats and murder against the church, how do you explain him becoming one of the very ones he was persecuting? It's because he was chosen by God. We're told that he was a chosen instrument. He was a tool. He is a vessel. He is the means by which God will carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. And now when we, when we start talking about this, especially with, I don't know, our, our Baptist neighbors or our Methodist neighbors, they'll, they'll make a statement that, oh, well, your choosing or your belief in predestination just makes us a bunch of mindless robots or puppets on a string. Well, what do we see in the life of Saul of Tarsus? His will is not violated. Meaning, he has the freedom to make choices according to the desires of his heart. It's just that the Lord Jesus changes his heart. He remains Saul. He has the same personality, the same gifts, the same history, the same life experiences. His voice 
doesn't change. His eyes aren't blank. He doesn't become a Stepford disciple. He's not some puppet on a string. He remains Saul. But he's a chosen instrument. You know, that word instrument in the Greek means a vessel or container or jar. You know, when I, my first impression of when I think instrument, I think of some type of tool like you would have in your shop. It's more equivalent to a bucket or pot or, or jar. And this, this makes sense. Because the Apostle Paul will go on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So here is Saul, a chosen instrument. He is a jar that is going to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the Jews. And he's going to be a weak, cracked, fragile jar of clay to show that all the credit and the power belongs to God and not to Paul. The weaker the human instrument, the greater the glory God gets. You know, it's the same with us. You and I are like clay pots. We are cracked. Some are more cracked than others. We are fragile. But we have been entrusted with a treasure. We're to carry that treasure everywhere we go. We're to share that treasure with others. And there will be situations where we'll have to come to the realization, you know, this treasure I'm carrying, it's worth being broken for. It's worth being broken for. Ananias, it was that way with him. If this is it, if this is how my life ends, if this is the Lord's plan for me, it is worth being broken for the name of Jesus. It's going to be the same with the Apostle Paul and his history and the road that lies before him. If you said, Paul, is it worth the beatings? Is it worth the imprisonment? Is it worth the ridicule and the hatred and the scorn that you're going to endure? Is the treasure you're carrying worth it? I'll say yes. In verse 16, we're told, the Lord Jesus says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, when we read that, we might hear Jesus saying that he's going to get his payback. You know, Saul made my people suffer, so I'm going to make him suffer. He made the lives of my people miserable, so I'm going to make his life miserable. That's not the case, though. That's not what the Lord Jesus is saying. When you see, uh, when you see, must suffer, translate that as necessary to suffer. He's not getting revenge here. He's not getting payback. It is, he's going to show him how it is necessary 
for him to suffer for the sake of Jesus. You know, these two ideas go hand in hand. They often, they often accompany one another. This idea of, I am a chosen instrument who's been entrusted with the treasure of the gospel, and then suffering. These two go hand in hand. It's not by mistake that they follow one another so closely in the words of our Lord. Saul was necessary for him to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. And he would suffer. He would suffer in unbelievable ways. He would be persecuted. He would ultimately, as tradition tells us, be martyred in Rome. But it was worth it. He had been given something that was worth being broken for. And in time, he would even find joy in that suffering. He would write to the church at Rome and say, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He'd write to the church in Colossae and tell them, I am praying for you. I'm praying that you would be strengthened and have endurance and patience with joy. And then of himself, he would say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the sake of the body, the church. just want to end with this. Saul of Tarsus was sent a man named Ananias. God the Father has sent one to demonstrate the infinite extent of his grace. God the Father sent the Lord Jesus. And he came in the form of a servant. And he died... He died for our sins while we were still enemies with him, while we were still hostile to him, and he did so gladly. The writer of Hebrews tells us he endured the cross for the joy set before him. And he did it all so that we sinners might be made saints, so that we might be set apart and made righteous and be accepted and welcomed into the household of faith. I want you to leave here. If you are trusting and standing on the name of Jesus, I want you to leave here remembering that you are his chosen instrument. He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. He has converted you, giving you faith and repentance. He has given you a new heart and brought spiritual life where there was darkness. And you may be a cracked, fragile vessel, but he has entrusted to you a beautiful treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you leave here, you go home and you go to work and you're in your weekly schedule, you carry that treasure with you. 
And there might arise a circumstance where you are called to suffer for the sake of that name. Now, I, I realize our context is much different. And the freedom we enjoy now is an immense blessing. But there will be suffering for the sake of Jesus. And yet, as we know, it's always worth it. The same man will later write, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering for the sake of his name is always worth it. You are his chosen instrument. Will you respond with obedience when he calls? And do you view the treasure you're carrying as something worth being broken for? Let's pray together. Father God, we remember that the gospel call requires everything of us. It requires us to die, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Father, would we be so overcome by the beauty of the gospel, this treasure that has been freely given to us, that it would motivate us to good works, the good works you have planned for us. Father, help us to see that there is no greater joy than being poured out for your glory and for the sake of your church. Father, use us, your instruments, to accomplish your purposes and to build your church, which will will never fail. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.